Good morning. <laughs> Is this Windsor Community Church? It's good to see you all. Is my beautiful bride in here? Could you do me a favor? Is that you? Okay. Could you grab the glasses off my desk, please? <laughs> Thank you very much. So as you can probably tell, we are all in need of God's grace this morning. But today is no different than any other day. That, that we live and move and breathe um, all to the glory and praise of God's grace. That we got up this morning, we're able to take nourishment, all by God's grace. Uh, super excited, in spite of my uh, tardiness, to be here today. Um, just grateful for this passage and this section of Hebrews. And uh, there is a, uh, if you've been with us for a while, um, Hebrews is a pretty intense book. Um, and it's not, it's not easy to, to understand things. Beautiful. Come here. Mm, yeah. Woo. Right there. Haven't seen her since last night. But I'm just going to pray. I'm going to pray that God would, uh, would teach us that um, we, were at a, uh, we were at a conference, a workshop this last week, me and seven other guys from this church, just getting equipped to better um, right, and rightly divide the Word of God. And, and uh, one of the, one of the instructors, instructors gave a great picture of uh, holding up the Word of God like this, that is, um, that is the Word of God that brings effect to the hearts of the hearers, and at the same time, I'm praying that the Word of God would change me, um, even as I proclaim it. So would you pray with me? God, you're so good, and you are so uh, great and greatly to be praised. And I thank you, uh, Lord Jesus, that, that you, your work of redemption um, is complete, and that you are sitting, not standing, you are sitting at the right hand of the throne of majesty, and that you are uh, reigning and ruling, that you have uh, sovereign rights and sovereign control in every area of our lives, and that there's nothing happening in this world, God, not in, not in Ukraine, um, not, in, um, not in Washington, God, not in, uh, uh, in Windsor. There's nothing happening that you're not uh, intimately aware of and sovereignly in control of. And God, I know I, uh, you give us uh, the freedom to make decisions and, and, um, and to uh, uh, submit to your spirit or to walk in our flesh. And God, we know that the peaceable way is always um, adhering to um, your good and perfect will for our lives. So, God, I pray that as we talk about the, uh, the contrast between the Old Covenant and the beautiful New Covenant, God, I pray that you would um, not just fill our brain with facts, but that you would change us from the inside out. We love you. We thank you that you love us now and you love us forevermore and that your love is not dependent upon anything we do. Anything we do right or anything we do wrong, that your love is everlasting, and we praise you for that. And God's people said, amen. So we are in uh, Hebrews chapter 8, 
And I've titled the sermon this morning, Better Promises. Better Promises. We are suckers for promises uh, of bigger and better things. Um, We are consumers that are always following for the next better thing, whether it be cars, diets, iPhones, exercise fads, etc. There's always the hope and promise of something better. There's something bigger and better out there that's looming that's going to give us greater satisfaction and happiness. I'm curious, what's the one thing that you have purchased over the years or that you have been given or that you acquired that there's just nothing better? That there's, there's, you know, is it a car, a computer, an iPhone? Um, hopefully most of you guys would say your wives, that you, by God's grace, were given your bride and there's nothing better. You know, at times there's, you know, you go, wow, like there's, you know, she's perfect. But like if we had a dog, things would even be better. That's a uh, inside joke that I'm still working on forgiving. Today is all about promises, better promises. And what we're going to see in God's Word is we're going to see God make five unbreakable and unchangeable promises to His people that are better than the former promises that He made. And these five unbreakable promises cannot be improved upon And they will be secured. They're going to be secured, as you're going to see today, by five I will statements. So we're going to to see God's better promises secured by him saying I will five times. The context here is that the obsolete old covenant is fading away and that the perfect and everlasting new covenant is here to stay. And these promises that we're going to talk, today, talk about today, they have massive implications for the way we live our lives as Christians. So if you're a Christian here today, um, listen up, because it will bring you great encouragement, I pray, and it will spur you on to want to say, I will, to God in all that he asks of us. And for the non-believer, for those that are here today without faith in Christ, there's implications for you as well, because there is no way to grab a hold of the promises by simply saying, I will. That we grab a hold of the promises of God by believing Him when He says, I will. So let's dive in. We think back to last week, we looked at the uh, order of Melchizedek where Jesus was a great high priest of the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a man in Genesis 14 who had no beginning or no end. Um, he, was, uh, he was a priest, and he was also the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And we saw that he was a type or a shadow um, of, of the perfect king of righteousness and peace, the great high priest. And the author of Hebrews, the author is unknown, he's, he's writing to Jewish Christians, just a reminder, He's writing to Christians who have been regenerated. They've been saved by faith in the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. But they, because of persecution, they seem to want to go back to their old ways, to their their old covenant ways. And he finished up the last section of Scripture in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 7 by reminding us is that Jesus was different than the human high priest and that he sacrificed once and for all. 
where the high priest would sacrifice for themselves. They would kill a goat, um, excuse me, kill a bull for their own sins, and then they would sacrifice goats for the sins of the people. And that was on the Day of Atonement once a year. And they would have to continue doing that year after year to hold back the wrath of God. But Jesus was different. Jesus sacrificed once and for all. He laid down his life once for the sins of all, forever, for those who would put their faith and trust in him. And he also made the point in verse 28 that Jesus remains perfect forever. He was perfect in his pre-incarnation. He was perfect in his life, when he, uh, in his incarnation, and he remains perfect forever. And that brings us to our passage today. And we'll look at verses 1 and 2 first, where the author says, Now the point in what we were saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Jesus is our great high priest who is enthroned in the heavenly tabernacle that God set up. His work is finished. He has taken his rightful place at the right hand of the Father as King of kings and the Lord of lords. And unlike the priests of old, he sat down. He's sitting down. His work is done. And his work now is to intercede for the saints. So our author reminds us of the difference between Jesus, our king, and our great high priest, and the human high priest. And we see this in verses 3 through 5. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. This priest being Jesus, that to be a high priest you must have something to offer. The high priest's function was to, had a threefold function, to meet with God, to intercede on behalf of the people, and to offer sacrifices for their own sin, the the priest's own sin, and as I mentioned, for the sins of the people. Therefore, every high priest was appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices to God. It's the same with Jesus. Jesus, the great high priest, the true high priest, had to offer something in order to be called a high priest. But there's a couple of massive differences between Jesus' ministry and that of the earthly high priest that the author wants to highlight before we move on. We first see this difference in verse 4. If he were on earth, Jesus, he would not be a priest at all since there there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. How did the human high priests um, offer gifts according to the law? A couple of ways. One is that they were appointed, that, that the high priests were from the line of Levi. Um, And Jesus, if you remember, was from the line of Judah. Remember, uh, Jacob had 12 sons, and um, one of those sons was Levi, and that's where the the Levitical priesthood came from. And another son was Judah, and that's where um, King David came through, and the the, uh, heir of King David's uh, throne, which we know to be Jesus, came through. So, um, So the high priests earthly high priests um, had to offer gifts according to the law, so they had to be from the Levitical uh, priesthood, and also they had to sacrifice annually on the Day of Atonement for, the sin, for their own sins and for the sins of the people. The second difference can be seen in verse 5, that they, they, the human high priest served a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. And a copy or a shadow is, a, is something that, that foreshadows um, the perfect to come. It's it's a it's a foreshadowing. It's a it's just a um, it's a it's an imprint of the perfect reality to come. So it says they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, 
He was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. And um, the author of Hebrews here is quoting Exodus chapter 25 verses 40 in saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The earthly tabernacle, the priest and sacrificial system that were given to Moses by God at Sinai is what's being talked about here. And these weren't bad. The old covenant isn't bad. Um, We're not going to talk about a lot uh, about this today, but you can see it in both Romans and Galatians where Paul said that the that the the old covenant, or excuse me, the the law in particular was a tutor. It was a guardian. So the law in the old covenant was good because it would it it actually showed God's people and it actually shows us today. If you're here with us today and you don't know Jesus and you're trying to keep the law, you're trying to keep the Ten Commandments, you're trying to do what the Bible says and you don't have a regenerate heart, it shows you that it is impossible for you to keep the law. And we see in Romans that the wages of sin, the wages, the the, the payment for not keeping the law is death. So the law is good uh, in showing us that we can't keep it. So so the, the priests and the tabernacle and the sacrifices were a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. I want to take you back to Exodus 25. God first gave his instructions in Exodus 25, 8 through 9. I want you to notice why this sanctuary was being built. And let's just walk through this just for a a moment. That, um, That Moses delivered his people from Exodus. It was God that delivered them, but Moses led them out. And it, and it was in the deliverance from Exodus was a foreshadowing. It didn't didn't save anybody. It was a foreshadowing of our Exodus from slavery to sin and Satan. And then they they went they went into the wilderness on the way to the promised land um, on their own, and God was not with them. So. Um, so God would meet with Moses on the top of Mount Sinai, and on the top of Mount Sinai, um, God gave Moses instructions to build a tabernacle or a tent where God would meet with his people, where the great high priest can go in and meet with God and sacrifice to God on behalf of the people and intercede um, in between God and the people. That was the purpose of the tent or the tabernacle, if you will. So I want, to, I want to read this to you, Exodus 25, 8 through 9. I want you to notice um, the purpose of the sanctuary, the purpose of the tent, the purpose of the tabernacle, if you will. It says this, and let them make me a sanctuary. This is God instructing Moses. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. God was was settling in. He was settling in with his people to dwell in their midst, and he wanted a temporary dwelling place to resemble his eternal dwelling place. And we're going to talk about this in a few weeks, actually, about the furnishings. This is going to be on Stephen to explain this, the furnishings and everything in the, in the tabernacle, which later became the temple. And this is the great ark of Scripture, that I may dwell in their midst, a noble God 
dwelling with his people. The point isn't just forgiveness. Forgiveness is not the ark of Scripture. What the ark of Scripture is, is that God created us to be known by him and to know him and to have him dwell with us. And we see that all throughout Scripture. We see it in the garden that God walked with Adam and Eve, what? In the coolness of the day. They were created to be with God. The tabernacle in the wilderness was created so that God could dwell with his people. Later in Jerusalem, the temple was built so that God could dwell with his people. And then now today, post-temple and um, post-Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, how does he dwell with us? In his spirit. He dwells with you now. And one day it says in Revelation um, uh, 21.3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. It goes back to the garden that we will be with God and he will be with us. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The pattern that God showed Moses on the mountain was a copy of the heavenly tent or tabernacle. But the point of the tabernacle that you're going to hear more about in a couple of weeks is what? What's the point of the tabernacle? It's God dwelling with his people. That's the purpose of the tabernacle and the, uh, and the, uh, and the temple to follow. Verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent then the old, as a covenant or the new covenant he mediates, is better, since it is enacted on better promises. What's a mediator? First of all, a good mediator has both the, the, the best interests of both parties in mind. It's not, it's, if, if he doesn't have the interests of both parties in mind, he is, a, he is a prosecution attorney or a defense attorney. A mediator has equally um, the interests of both parties in mind. And I, I love what the, I read by an anonymous um, commentator. He said this about uh, a true mediator, uh, which happens to be Jesus. Jesus is the perfect atone maker or mediator, conserving the interests of both parties for whom he acts. In this case, God and man, intensively zealous that God's honor should contract no stain. In other words, he's aware that God is a holy God, and he can have nothing to do with stained and sinful humanity. Intensely zealous that God's honor should contract no stain, this ideal mediator, having secured the supreme end, will with equal zeal seek the offenders, the sinner's rescue and reclamation. Think about that. That that's what Jesus did. He satisfied a holy God. And he gave, made a way for sinful humanity to know and have a relationship with the Holy God. The substance of the shadow, Jesus has obtained a ministry that is more excellent than the old. As the new covenant uh, he, he mediates is better since it is enacted or based on or established on better promises. The new and lasting covenant involves the transformation of people. The new covenant 
has nothing to do with, uh, with laws and rules. It's better because of what was sacrificed. A perfect human being and not animals. And it's better because of what it accomplished, and that is, is the transformation of the hearts of sinful human beings. For Jesus, once and for all sacrifice, not only allowed him into the heavenly sanctuary, his sacrifice um, allowed him into the heavenly sanctuary. It seated him on the right, on his rightful throne of majesty, where he reigns and rules. But not only did he enter, and not only does he now reign, but he tore the dividing wall or the veil that separated sinful sinful humanity from a holy God so that we can approach him and we can know him. And that's the point. Now we're going to get to the the beauty, the increasing beauty of this passage in verses 7 through 13 where we're going to see an explanation of the superiority or the better promises of the new covenant. And the author now puts a spotlight on the better promises of the new covenant. And I pray that these promises, these beautiful promises, will instill joy in your heart. It will give you a growing desire to live in submission to his good and perfect will motivated by the knowledge that you are secure in the covenant love of a holy and just God. And I want you to pay attention to the first person pronouns in our remaining passages this morning. Five times. Five times God is heard saying, I will. I will, which emphasizes his better new covenant promises to his people. Now I would do a little um, hunt, a little Waldo hunt in these passages and circle them in your Bible. Highlight them in your Bible. Whenever you're doubting God's promises for you, be reminded that he said he will. It's important to see that the old covenant promises, first of all, were dependent upon the faithfulness of the people. The Old Covenant promises were dependent upon the faithfulness of God's people. At the same time, it's important to know that the people were saved in the Old Covenant era in the same way they're saved today. I just want you to think about that for a moment. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was dependent upon the faithfulness of the people. At the same time, people were not saved by their faithfulness. They were saved by faith. In the Old Covenant. It's important because I think we get that wrong. It's not any different then as it is now. We're told in Genesis 15, just a couple of chapters after God gave Abraham the Abrahamic covenant, saying to you that all the nations will be blessed through your seed, that you'll have a son. And then God doubles down on that promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 when he told Abraham that the heir of his very own son would be a blessing to all people. Well, Abraham's response. It says, Abraham believed and it was countered to him as righteousness. 
So the way to salvation has always been through faith in a promised Redeemer. And today, before we look at the uh, God's I will promises, I want to take you back to the old covenant promises of God to his people and their response to that promise. Exodus 19, 5 through 8. In the wilderness, God said to his people, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God telling Moses to speak to the people. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all the words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people together said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And notice it doesn't say it was counted to them as righteousness. Notice whose faithfulness the old covenant depended upon. You will. And the people's response was, we will. And then we see a, several generations later, God remained, reminded his hearers of that covenant he made to Israel in the wilderness. In Jeremiah 7.23. But this command I gave to them. Obey my voice. And I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the way that I command you, that it may be well for you. And then Jeremiah reiterates God's charge against his people. Because they couldn't do it. Nobody can do it. You can't do it. We have a better chance of doing it, as you're going to see, because we have been uh, given a new heart. But here's what God's charge is against his disobedient people. But they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels in the stubbornness of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets to them, day after day, prophet after prophet, saying, repent, turn to the Lord. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. That's the plight of humanity. Now we see in verse 7 that the author establishes the need for the better promises of a new covenant because the first was imperfect. And it wasn't able to save people from their sins and allow them to know God and to ultimately be His people. Verse 7, for for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. That's the, mo that's the biggest understatement of the, uh, on the planet. But it is so, tr don't, don't let that pass by. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would not have been an occasion for a second. Israel's history was one of repeated covenant breaking. But in the new covenant, God ensures that neither party will it ensures that neither party will break the covenant. In fact, neither party is even capable of breaking the new covenant because it has sure promises and the way it's set up. And we'll talk about this. 
And he's going to use Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. If you want to fact check any of this, just keep a finger in Hebrews 8 and put a finger in Jeremiah 31. 31. We're going to see here in verses 8 through 12 that the author, uh, uh, that, that, the, that the words of the Lord spoken through the prophet Jeremiah to the people of Israel 600 years ago before the birth of Jesus. That's it's Jeremiah speaking 600 years before the birth of Jesus to God's people. So let's take a look at the first I will statement in verses 8 and 9. For he, God, finds fault with them, the people, humanity, in this case um, Israel, when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. All throughout Scripture, God refers to himself as the husband and his people as the bride, the church as the bride. When I marry a couple, I will ask questions that require a covenant I will response. Not I do, but I will. Will you honor her? I will. Will you keep her? I will. Will you comfort her? I will. Will you forsake all others? I will. Will you keep yourself for her? I will. The promise of the old covenant relied fully on the obedience of the people. God found fault in the people under the old covenant who were sinful and broke their covenant with God. If they weren't sinful, there would be no new covenant. Praise be to God that the new covenant relies not on the obedience of you and me, but on the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. And unlike a contract, this covenant can't be broken. When we read that God promises to never leave us nor forsake us, it's because His perfect righteousness has been imputed to us. It's now who we are. That we're united with Christ. He took all of our sin and He gave us all of His righteousness. We'll continue in Hebrews 10 and 11. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This first part, verse 10, that I will make a covenant with the house of Israel, it's a, it's a massive new covenant blessing. Um, that I'll put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. It's a massive New Testament blessing. Um, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3.3. 3, and you show, speaking to the, to the church in Corinth, that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What Paul is saying here is that what has made you God's possession is not your adherence to the law, but a new heart. Rather than writing the law on stones and scrolls and exhorting the people to internalize it and strive to obey the law of God, God will write it on our hearts by giving us His Spirit 
And the spirit of the new covenant brings transformation to the heart of new covenant believers. Um, and then the, and the spirit permanently indwells us so that obedience flows from the inside out. That if you know Jesus Christ, you know this. That, that, the, that the spirit of God gives us a want to, not just a have to. The Spirit of God gives us a want to, not simply a have to. Ezekiel 36-26, he prophesied at the same time as Jeremiah, just in a different town. And he said this, he said, I will give you a new, Jesus speaking through Ezekiel, or God speaking through Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone, the rebellious heart that wants to go your own way. I will remove a heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. A heart that wants to obey. A heart that has been renewed. We've been given and sealed. We've been given the Holy Spirit and sealed by the Holy Spirit who gives us the desire and the power to live in submission to the law of Christ while knowing that we are loved and secure when we fall short. We have been given and sealed by the Holy Spirit who gives us the the desire and the power to live in submission to the law of Christ, knowing that we are loved and secure even when we fall short. The promise that I will be, that I will, the promise that I will be their God and they will be my people is an unbreakable promise and its integrity is not dependent upon you. The integrity of that promise that God will be our, he will be our God, we'll be his people is 100% dependent upon God. And in verse 11 it says, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. If you want to do a word study, do a word study. I think Bible Project might have a, a video on this, on knowing God. It's from the Greek word genesko. And I'm going to let you, uh, it's one of the most beautiful words in the entirety of God's word. Because again, knowing God is an ark that goes throughout the entire Bible, that we were created to know him and to be known by him. And what it means is to, that we know God, not just know about him intellectually, but we know him by experience. Not just knowing about him or acknowledging his, his, his existence. It's not one nation under God or teaching adherence to the Ten Commandments. These are not bad, but they are moral endeavors that might help keep a society from chaos, but they don't help anyone know God in the way that he has created us and invites us to know him experientially through the person of Jesus Christ. Through the inauguration of the new covenant, then God will fulfill his promises and secure his redemptive purposes for his people. And this this prophecy of Jeremiah was fulfilled by the inauguration of the new covenant in Christ's sacrificial death and his triumphant resurrection and exaltation to service 
at the right hand of God as the great high priest and reigning and ruling king. It is a new covenant established by a superior offering by which people can know God and have his laws written on our minds and hearts and have our sins forgiven. Moses wrote this in Exodus 34. And I'll close with a couple of implications. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Implications for you, believer, in this passage today, these, these better promises, is that you have a God who says, I will be gracious and merciful, slow to anger. What I have for you is abounding steadfast love and faithfulness. And he didn't just pronounce that on you because of your obedience, but he pronounced that on you because of your faith in the perfect one. And if you're with us today that, and you've yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus, that you're still trying to say, God, I will, God, I will, God, I will, and keep falling short. It's not going to get you up the ladder to heaven. That Jesus condescended, that he came down the ladder, if you will, and he lived the perfect life that you can't live. And he wants a relationship with you. He created you to know him. And you can know him by trusting in him. Trusting in his sacrifice made once and for all for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you trust in him, he will give you his spirit that empowers you, that gives you a yes and a desire to want to obey. And it gives you the power to obey. And it's not a burden. And that's why he can say, Matthew can say, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Stop trying. And come to me. For my yoke is easy. Let's pray. God, thank you for this section of scripture and the reminder of better promises. That you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. You've given us everything we need in this uh, broken and um, trial-ridden world to be content and joyful and peaceful. And I thank you that your promises are not contingent upon our I will. But they're anchored into your I will. 
And I pray, God, that as a result of your repeated I wills, your repeated promises, God, that we would be um, compelled to run after you with reckless abandon. And then we, when we uh, fail, to know that your ear is inclined to us, your eyes are on us, your arms are open, and you embrace and carry us forward. And we love you for that. We praise you. We pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.